this is Catherine Bradford, and I'm very happy to have you join me this afternoon for the Wellness Roadshow. Always excited to be back uh, in the studio with a great opportunity for more learning for all of us. And so I thank all of you who are tuning in live, and thank you very much as well. Those of you that take time to download this podcast for later listening, uh, greatly appreciated there. I want to let you know at the very beginning of the show today that this uh, interview today with Nora Gidgaudis is a part two uh, fully intended to have uh, us explore further all of the amazing information and knowledge that she brings us in her book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Total Health the Way Evolution Intended. Um, Nora, and didn't, and didn't. You know, uh, Nora was my guest on the 12th of May, and if you'd like to access uh, the podcast for part one of that show, you can do so by going to www.wellnessroadshowrdshow.com and then click on archives, and it's right there, alphabetic, or actually uh, chronologically listed, so just scroll to uh, early in May, and there you go. But um, And of course, today's conversation, Nora, will stand alone. Um, it will be completely, you know, uh, uh, valuable in and of its own, right? But oh, absolutely. Uh, but the two dovetail together so much. And the reason why I asked you back, as you well know, we talked, um, you know, when I left the interview last time, I was so thrilled at having learned so much from not only having read the book, but having an opportunity to, to talk with you and ask questions in person. But I, I, I was still hungry. I, I still hungry. There you go. But you know, hungry for meat. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, Raw meat. I wanted the meat. <laughs> yes. But I, I had so many questions in, in my mind still that I said, you know, I really want to get, uh, get you back on the air and, and, and clarify. And I also think that we'll have probably some listeners calling in today because it really, I have to say, it, uh, I love the information. It really fits well with who I am personally and physically and mentally. But I think so much was new and flies in the face of so much erroneous uh, misinformation, which is floating around the world these days about what's healthy, what's not healthy. Yep. Uh, and I really think we owe it to everyone. It's so important um, that we really owe it to everyone to kind of come in and and roll up our sleeves and dive into some some more serious questions along these lines. So that being said, welcome back. Well, thank you. It is really uh, it's, it's wonderful to be back. This is a just such a great great show. And you know, I love so much. First of all, let's also kudos to you. You've had now two two weeks of being on the air on your own show. Yes. Uh, today was your second uh, second airing at ten o'clock in the morning on Voice America. You can find Nora. And uh, so, if you love all this stuff that we're throwing your way, you don't have to cry when she's off the air with me. <laughs> you can go every week on Wednesdays at ten in the morning and find uh, find her on the air. And she's got a great lineup coming up. Uh, it's it's on her website too, which we should give out immediately. Yeah. www dot primal body a uh, primal body uh, dash. dash primal mind dot com. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful uh, website, very complete. And for those of us that are uh, new at making changes uh, for the better for our health, uh, very valuable because you have a lot of great things in there. Primal recipes of which I really love too. So anyway, rolling up our sleeves here. Um, I know that uh, last week or last two weeks ago we covered quite a bit of just the basic principles of the book. And if you could, you give us a a sort of Reader's Digest condensed version of bringing us up to date with just really basically what the premise of the book is about. <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> well, I can, I can try. You okay. know. It, you know, it, it really looks at um, 
health from a very, very foundational perspective. And again, I'm, I'm going over how it is that our physiology evolved over 2.6 million years, 100,000 generations, what, and what were the selective pressures that actually established our nutritional requirements. Right. Because I, I think when you're trying to figure out how to eat well, you know, it, it's important to look back on uh, that whole history of evolution to understand, you know, what kind of requirements we might have today. Right. Even as the environment has changed uh, pretty considerably, uh, our nutritional requirements haven't. Our physiology hasn't. Right. In probably forty to one hundred thousand years, it hasn't changed appreciably. Right. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. You know, so that's that's mm-hmm. first and foremost, and mm-hmm. um, so I also look at some of the basic tenets of physiology, uh, of human physiology, really how our body actually works, and try to put it in fairly simple terms so you can understand, you know, how the machine you inhabit, you know, functions. Right. That gives you another clue as to what it needs in order to function well. Right. And uh, on top of that. Uh, I also look at some of what's going on in modern-day human longevity research because, uh, you know, nature's intentions aren't always compatible with our own individually. And so uh, if we understand how nature works and whatnot, you can, you can sort of dovetail some of what's going on with how we evolved with how we might best apply that toward living the longest and healthiest uh, life possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I touch upon some aspects of, of exercise and, and, you know, how we're designed physiologically in terms of how exercise is likely to best work for us. And it turns out we don't need to be spending anywhere near as much time in the gym as most people do. Like more isn't better. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. You mm-hmm. know, our ancestors, they didn't have running shoes and gym memberships. Right. They just ran like hell from the same right. Exactly. Tiger, right? yeah, from whatever. They either were either chasing after what they, uh, what they wanted to eat or running away from what wanted to eat them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so that's, yeah, that's, that's part of it, too. Um, but, you know, let me say here right away, just interject if you don't sure. mind. I, I think that there's a really important point here because I think uh, that, that I want to reiterate it's, it's sort of the, one of the very huge cornerstones that create the foundation for what we're talking about today, and that is that we need to r- recognize what we're talking about is a bazillion years of, of divine evolutionary uh, you know, design uh, compared to a flash in the pan, which is modern society right and so you know even agriculture agriculture right the the advent of of uh, an agri uh, agri, what they call a gregarian um you know uh, society you know culture but and so what we're looking at is you know all of these modern fads and stuff in fact that we we think we want to be so right all the time as a modern society and we think that technology is always you know for the better in some ways it's not um, and so what we're doing is looking comparatively at, you know, um, really where we've been uh, coming from for, you know, let's say most of the past, you know, timeline in history. And then this very small fraction of time, which is the most recent times where we've developed incredibly 
uh, different and um, maybe not so healthy habits as a modern society. And this is the root of what we're we're getting at here yeah. is that, you know, everybody now would say, well, wait a minute, but do, don't we always improve upon ourselves? And yeah. haven't we made so many great advances in technology uh, with understanding and, and science, you know, showing us really, you know, all these refined foods and all this, you know, um, genetic uh, manipulation of foods and all these things. Haven't we, you know, just become better and better and better? And really, sadly, at the end, the answer is no. Right, and we did take a uh, we did deviate from the the path of normality, if you would, uh, as mankind or the human needs of the species, off into this tangent, which most people are on the tangent, and the tangent is largely wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In- interesting. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- you know, and and with modern day, with the modern day food industry, for instance. You know, there's a new Franken food out every single day, mm-hmm. and the food supply is changing. So rapidly now, mm-hmm. uh, and and there are laws that are looking to undermine the quality of our food supply all the time. It's right. like crazy how fast it's all changing for the worse. Mm-hmm. And you and know, when you say Franken food, just for those people that don't get it, yeah. uh, we're talking about man-made food, right? The stuff that comes out of a test tube. I mean, our ancestors right. never would have thought to get their meal out of a cardboard box, or, right? You know, right. right. Um, uh, and. And everybody, you know, if you walk into a Safeway store and you just sit there and you watch what, or in Albertsons or, you know, wherever, and you just watch what people are putting on the conveyor belt, mm-hmm. and uh, you can take a look at them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. see exactly how what they're throwing on the conveyor belt has affected their physical and sometimes even mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do have to say, you know, in the, uh, in the favor of, um, you know, um, Defending people that, that do get it, you know, it's not like we're all uh, that so many people are, are on the wrong track. Obviously, uh, convenience is a, is become a huge factor in in eating for most people. And you're right in the decline, the relationship between the uh, uh, rise in disease numbers or statistics around on, early onset disease or just disease in general, and and uh, the correlation between the degradation of food, quality of food, and eating habits is very very uh, you know. One in one pocket and one in the other, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so we're looking at that. But even those of us who have been, to varying degrees, uh, conscientious, looking for organics or natural, whatever that might mean, uh, you know, I think there's misinformation on that too. But, you know, those of us that try to go into the whole healthy, you know, lifestyle are even still in some great degree, uh, you know, being misled. And so herein lies the the rub, if you would, for so many uh, natural concerned citizens seeking health is, you know, will the person telling the truth really please stand up? Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's so confusing. And, uh, you know, I myself being uh, very much involved in the, in the wellness industry for uh, most of my adult life, uh, and, you know, coming in and out of professional relationships with not only as a patient myself, but as a as a comrade, you know, or associate with professionals in naturopathy and nutrition and all sorts of things. You know, I, I'm still now wondering, wow, you know, where are even these people being misled, you know, misguided? Um, because like the veg, the big, huge thing for vegetables and, and we talked about this a little bit last time, lentils or uh, you know, and people saying, avoid meat, avoid red meat, avoid red meat, you right, know. Right, right, right. So you can see we're we're a confused group of people. I don't blame people for being confused or jaded at all. I, and I, you know, you'll see obese people walking around in the street, and I and I feel like I'm looking at victims of, of 
of a lot of conflicting political and economic interests. Right. You know, right. Uh, people, you know, they're being told by the media that certain things are good for you, certain things are bad, certain things are good for you by their doctor, um, certain things are bad for you by their doctors. Uh, and and then suddenly there's a, there's a some sort of news headline that says, oh, you know, we used to think this was bad for you, now it's good for you, or we used to think this was good for you, now it looks like it's bad for you. And people throw their arms up. I mean, everybody, we're living in a time where people are fundamentally cynical about this whole issue. They're, of they're, course. They're tired of it. Of course. And it's like, you know what, I'm going to eat what I want because I'm going to die anyway. Yeah. So so devil's advocate along those lines coming to you, what, you know, you coming in saying, and, and trust me, I love the book because it's so much me, uh, the meat eater anyway, and, and you know, um, someone comes to you and and they get the advice you know they come in to you to see you for a consultation and you tell them all the things that you believe they should be doing and they're like well why why is it what makes you different why should i believe you as opposed to the the naturopath that i just visited last week who told right. me largely here's what i should avoid and you're telling me now to go back to saturated fats well know? and what i say to people is don't believe me mm-hmm. look at look at the evidence take a look at you know we've been eating saturated fat and cholesterol for 2.6 million years. Mm-hmm. And heart disease is actually a fairly new disease for right, us. Right. And it's, it's not because we're living so much longer. You know, this is, and this is the kind of thing where arterial plaques are even showing up in young children now. So right. this is not, you know, the, 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 the byproduct of suddenly, oh, yeah, well, we're living so much longer and that's why. No, right, I mean, right, right, right. what they call the you know, diseases of modern civilization, you know, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, right. you know, autoimmune disorders. Right. And, autism and Asperger's and Tourette's and, you know. Right. And it's sad, yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Just open up a DSM-4 and take a pick. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. Yeah, just drop your finger down. Exactly. So let me jump right into one of my questions that I had. Um, and again, those of you that feel like we're maybe jumping ahead, I'm sorry, maybe you can, uh, you know, go and also listen to the podcast from the 12th of May. But anyway, let, let's take a look because something that fascinated me, and I don't think we really covered it uh, thoroughly enough in the last interview was this whole idea about uh, the, the bad rap that cholesterol has. Oh, I yes. was surprised, first of all, the fact that you sh- show in the book there's no link between, and here's a big one for people to wrap their minds around, no link between cholesterol levels and heart disease. No. Uh, pretty I mean, huge. People, well, people who have heart attacks, uh, have there are just as many people with, uh, with low cholesterol that get heart attacks as people with high cholesterol. And, mm-hmm. you know, my father, who was a very well-known uh, radiologist in his time. Um, he actually wrote uh, the book on cardiovascular radiology, mm-hmm. and he dropped dead of a heart attack, uh, and he had picture-perfect cholesterol. Uh-huh. He was very proud, actually, of the fact that his cholesterol was so low. Right. He followed all of the all of the things that the AMA uh, told him to do. Right. You know, low fat, low fat, no fat. You know, yeah, no, see, no salt on anything. Um, never used butter, always used margarine, you right, know, right. Uh, only used, you know, vegetable oils, you know, and the cooking and right. all this stuff. And in the end, it, it you know, it, it was not the uh, the fast track to to tremendous health. So are, we're not condoning high cholesterol numbers, but tell me what, what, um, 
What do you think about, uh, let's say, you know, average Joe walks in and for an evaluation with you, comes in with the most recent blood chemistry, right. a blood panel, and says, you know, look, my numbers are, are pretty high here for cholesterol. First of all, you also say all cholesterol is exactly the same. No difference between, or the, that from a standpoint of this, this focus on HDL versus LDL. Right. What about that? HD, okay, well, there are a few questions in that, in, yeah, in that yeah, statement, right. so we'll try to get to it, but... You know, high-density lipoproteins, low-density lipoproteins are not cholesterol. Mm-hmm. They are lipoproteins, which means they are carrier molecules for the lipoprotein, carrier molecules for cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So all cholesterol in the body is exactly the same. And the, H, or the LDL cholesterol basically takes cholesterol from the liver and distributes it out to the periphery of the body and makes the hormones and whatnot. And the HDL is the cholesterol that, that's basically returning <laughs> Okay. To the liver, so it can be recycled back into LDL again. Okay, so if and, you, and, and it yeah. ten, the, the tendency is for in people who seem a little bit healthier for HDL to be, um, you know, to have a slightly uh, well, not to be higher than LDL, but to have a to be a little bit more elevated and LDL to be a little bit more suppressed. And in people that are prone to being less healthy, LDL appears sometimes much higher than HDL. Although extremely high HDL can actually be reflective of inflammatory processes in the body, it may not be such a sign of great genetics or great health. Right. So you know, blood chemistry, in, you know, these markers are just indicators. Right. And they're not necessarily uh, fully diagnostic of, of anything. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the medical world, let me let me again play the 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 typical client or patient on right. on this side, you know, the medical world wants you to be afraid of those numbers or, or right. are so mindful. You like you walk into a bar and you're like, hi, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Leo and here's my HDL and LDL numbers. You know, right. I mean, people just throw them off. Like everyone knows basically what they are. And the oh. big, you know, the big goal is like, okay, I've got to do this to lower that and raise that and blah, right. blah, blah. Well, I mean, that's the people are absolutely obsessed with cholesterol. I do blood chemistry, uh, functional blood chemistry, you know, analysis all the time, uh, doing what I do. Right. And when people go out and they get this expanded blood chemistry panel that comes back to me, their first question, you know, when we sit down to talk about it, what was my cholesterol? Right, right. Everybody, yeah, there's been this this panic. It's almost like, you know, um, you know, the whole terrorism scare and everything. And people are just obsessed with this one thing, assuming that it's the worst possible indicator uh, of whether they're going to live or die. And I actually worry far more about people whose cholesterol is too low than too high. Mm-hmm. When your cholesterol is, you know, low, like below 150, we're looking at a much higher incidence of morta- of all-cause mortality. Right. Much higher incidence of mortality from, from violence, suicide, from cancer, mm-hmm. um, from so many, uh, from all kinds of mental illness, mm-hmm. uh, depression. It's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, cholesterol, when it is, now, you know, to, to say what's, quote-unquote, too high is also a little bit tricky. Right. Because... Who established what was too high and what was too low? Well, these things were were decided behind closed doors in a fair. And I and I, I I've had conversations with uh, Dr. Mary Anik. She's arguably the world's foremost scientific expert on dietary fats and human health. And you know, she said what what established this baseline of two and of two hundred as as the golden number, which they're hoping to lower now. Wow. Um, as don't don't you know don't go over that right. was purely arbitrary. Hmm. They sat around. They said, "Well, what do you think?" In this you know behind closed doors, she was sitting in the room watching this happen, watching this unfold. Mm-hmm. And 
in part what they're doing is establishing a baseline over which it was going to be easy to bring people into the healthcare system with statin drugs, you know, which of course is the darling now of the yeah. pharmaceutical industry. Statins are the number one prescribed medication, so you can imagine how many billions of dollars are at stake. Oh, yeah. In fact, with, with blood chemistry panels, quite literally, you know you know how you have those lab ranges? Yes. They're actually, there's nothing scientific about a lab range. Right. What lab ranges represent um, are, are two ends of a bell curve of everyone who went into that particular lab system for blood work. So, in other words, lab ranges vary from area of the country to area of the country and from lab to lab. Mm. And they're not really standardized for anything except for these lipid uh, panels, you know, they're standard, trying to standardize cholesterol, which is about the only thing they do standardize, um, because they're basically interested in getting people on, on Lipitor is what it boils down to. Oh, There's yeah, not yeah. really a sound scientific basis behind uh, those concerns of, oh, cholesterol over 200. Well, ugh. I mean, even if you have somebody with a cholesterol of 300, Cholesterol in and of itself is no more the cause of heart disease than gray hair is the cause of old age. Right. It's an indicator. If cholesterol is elevated past a certain point, whatever that thing is that you want to say, 200 or 250 or whatever, what it's telling you is that there's something going on in your bloodstream for which cholesterol is needed. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Right. Cholesterol is your body's version of duct tape. Yeah. It goes around patching up lesions. It's an antioxidant. It's a, an incredibly vital component of every single cell in your body. It makes up um, portions of all of your cell membranes. You need it in your brain for cognitive functioning. In fact, one of the side effects of, of, of Lipitor use is some of the uh, signs of senile uh, dementia. Mm-hmm. That can be one of the side effects because it impairs to, to lower cholesterol excessively. It starts to impair cognitive functioning after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, every single cell in your body has a means of manufacturing its own supply. It has always been a part of our diet. There's no link, in fact, between dietary cholesterol and serum cholesterol in terms of, oh, if I eat these eggs, my cholesterol is going to go up. Right. Well, we have anywhere from 100 to 150,000 milligrams of cholesterol circulating in our body at any given time. Mm-hmm. You think that, you know, 60 or 70 milligrams of cholesterol from an egg is going to make that much of a dent <laughs> in that pool. Right. Not really. Right. And if it is making, uh, or, or if it is going up in your bloodstream, then it's kind of like the engine light going on, you right. know? Right. Uh, it's sort of like, and, and taking statin drugs or, or doing, trying to do something to bring those cholesterol numbers down is the equivalent of, trying to get rid of the firemen and blame the firemen that come to put out the fire. Mm-hmm. Cholesterol is showing up for a reason. Your body isn't your enemy. It didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know, this son of a bitch, I'm yeah. going to plaque his arteries today. You right, know? right. Your, your body's always trying to do the best that it can with what it has to work with. It's constantly compensating for things in, in your internal environment, and it's trying to do the best that it can. So um, what I'm looking at if cholesterol is elevated, Typically what you have, and I'll have people say, you know, I eat a really low-fat diet and, right. you know, and all this stuff, and I'll say, well, what's your carb intake like? Well, you know, yeah, I, I like carbs. Well, mm-hmm. if you don't eat cholesterol, what's going to happen is your body's going to become much more efficient because it is important enough to our survival that we have mechanisms to compensate for low dietary intake. Right. So if you don't eat enough, what's going to happen is your body's going to become really efficient at synthesizing it 
from carbohydrates in the diet, from right. whatever else it has to work with. Right. And carbohydrates tend to be tend to be the next thing. So there's this enzyme in your liver called HMG-CoA reductase that upregulates, and so that when you eat other foods, anything other than cholesterol, your body starts synthesizing cholesterol like mad. So when I see a high cholesterol, my first thought, especially if I see a really low LDL, it's just an indicator. It's like, oh, we've got a carbivore here. Yeah. You know, i got somebody who likes their num-nums and their yam-yams. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, we're going to have to have a talk about. But there are other things, too. Infections can cause your cholesterol to elevate because there's stress on the body. Mm-hmm. Inflammation can cause cholesterol to elevate. Low thyroid function is a very common cause of elevated cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go, here we go with this whole domino effect with this cascading down the line. Okay, so what's causing the low thyroid and all right. that, you know? Yes. Well, we, we all yeah. have to go down the line. And, right. and again, I in my book, I really want, I talk about how to, how to interpret what's going on with your endocrine system, not to have people self-diagnosing and all of that, right. but just to have an understanding of how their body works and that there is a hierarchy of function with respect to our hormones. Right. And uh, if you're, you know, your thyroid, of course, is your body idling while it's at rest. It, it controls your metabolic rate while you're at rest. And, of course, your adrenals are what are controlling your uh, your metabolism while you're moving, while you're doing things, right. uh, while you're active. And so if you're driving yourself into the ground, you're working two jobs, you've got three kids, um, you're burning the midnight oil and watching late-night TV and getting four hours of sleep a night, whatever, doesn't it make sense that your thyroid might tune itself down, you know, that they, your body might tune down the idle in order to keep you from blowing a gasket? Mm-hmm. And and so so many cause so uh, so much of what shows up is low thyroid is in part a reaction to uh, your body's having been in a state of chronic stress and your body it's your body's way of trying to slow you down right that that's one reason also excess estrogen levels that's another thing too that can lead to not just low thyroid but also autoimmune um, thyroid issues right and. Um, you know, and there's also just a massive epidemic, too, of iodine deficiency, and that's a whole separate topic. But right. you've got to look at all these things when right. you're trying to evaluate why somebody's thyroid might be on the fritz. And again, you know, not to be, uh, uh, you know, having people panic or anything. Obviously, no. you know, getting getting into someone that you trust and asking the right questions and being very self-advocating and, yep. and questioning, well, how come you want me to put, you know, put me on that medication? Right. Certainly, you know contacting you if they have any questions through your website they can go to and and get more information make an appointment with you um you know to really have each individual you can see how connected everything is is what i'm saying and how how much the balance uh, plays you know for you may have uh, one elevated level of something in your blood panel but it's because of something else that's further down the road you know um but you know uh, and i don't want to of course there's so many cool things we want to talk about today that I want to kind of scoot on to something else. So okay. so let's put that cholesterol piece over on the side here for the moment. Sure. Another missed piece of information, I think, uh, that comes around uh, that so many people, uh, when I now I'm when I'm standing in line at the grocery store and I see people start throwing soy products on the on the oh, conveyor yeah. belt, you know, I'm like, 
wait a minute, don't do that, you know, please read, please read this book, you know, and uh, it's just so hard for me to be in public now because I always want to walk up to people for a variety of reasons and just throw books at them, you know, but um, let's talk about what the, the, the misinformation about soy. Right. Oh, boy. Well, yeah. Can we do it in, you know, a few short words, actually? We, we can try, okay. yeah. Well, you know, soy is, is you know, 20, maybe 30 years ago or, you know, whenever it was in the 70s. I mean, almost nobody even you knew of it as a, as a food stuff. It's, a, it's probably the newest addition agriculturally to our food supply. And, um, you know, soy first entered the human food supply about 2,000 years ago in the, in the ancient uh, Chow dynasty in, in China. Um, for, for millennia, soy had been considered a very, uh, basically a toxic food, something unfit for human consumption, but it was used as a nitrogen fixator in the soil uh, and was used you know, to kind of rotate crops or whatever to get, you know, protein or nitrogen back into the soil again. But it was not considered something particularly edible. And then about 2,000 years ago, they figured out, wait a second, if we take this stuff and we ferment it, well, we can make it a little less toxic and use it, you know, because it kind of makes a tasty condiment. And so, and still throughout the, uh, throughout Asia today, uh, China and Japan and whatnot, soy is predominantly used as, as a fermented condiment, and, uh, you know, the popularity of tofu is growing because the, you know, monoculture agriculture is, and, and the influence of that is almost everywhere. But you have to realize these, you know, um, it's incredibly uh, new in terms of being a, a so-called food, and uh, in order to make it edible, it has to be processed beyond recognition uh, in order to neutralize what are called anti-nutrients. In other words, there are compounds in soy that can cause you a lot of problems. Soy contains the highest level of something called phytic acid of any grain or legume, and phytic acid basically binds with minerals and makes them unavailable for absorption. Mm. And not just the minerals that are present in that food, but it will draw them out. You can, you can generate pretty serious zinc deficiencies by eating a lot of soy, and they've known this for, for a very long time. Mm. Um, and so... You know, but phytic acid also reduces the assimilation of calcium and magnesium, um, copper and iron and other minerals. Um, and phytic acid in soy just isn't neutralized by ordinary preparation methods like soaking, sprouting, and, you know, long, slow cooking like you can neutralize uh, phytates in, in certain other uh, types of foods. Mm-hmm. And so the only thing that really neutralizes phytates in soy is fermentation. So your tempehs, nattos, misos tend to be... Uh, fairly free of phytic acid, but soy also contains something called trypsin inhibitors, and trypsin inhibitors basically um, block your body's ability to digest and absorb protein over time. They uh, mess with your pancreatic enzymes, cause them to not function properly, and make it much harder for you to be able to, even though soy is supposedly a protein source, it also, by its very nature, interferes with the uh, appropriate absorption of those proteins. Hmm. And in test animals, you know, soy-containing uh, trypsin inhibitors cause uh, stunted growth. There are also um, uh, goitrogens in soy, things that can uh, interfere with, you know, back to thyroid again, can, yeah. um, you know, lower thyroid function, interfere with that. And in fact, fermentation doesn't even, uh, even fermentation, con- uh, fermented 
soy products still contain some, some goitrogen, so you need to be a little bit careful about even the fermented uh, varieties. Mm-hmm. Then there's soy phytoestrogens, which, you know, we, which are marketed to women as some sort of health food for women. Well, you know, we've got more than plenty of estrogen, thank you very much, and quite frankly, we're living in a sea of estrogen mm-hmm. from all of the artificial estrogens in our environment. And uh, estrogen-like compounds, you know, uh, apart from being potent antithyroid agents, because those are the goitrogens, um, they've also been linked to increased incidences of things like breast cancer and, and other, you know, estrogen it itself stimulates cellular proliferation. Right. And even phytoestrogens are going to act in a similar fashion. Right. Um, the B12 analogs in soy aren't absorbed and can actually increase the body's requirement for B12. They increase the body's requirement for vitamin D. Um, yeah. You know, it so, just goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I literally so, got like four four pages worth of, here are all no the things knows, about yeah. soy you never knew and were afraid to ask. Right, right. So basically, uh, your general advice would be avoid soy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't think of any reason, really, why anybody needs to incorporate this. Okay, yeah. But, you know, yeah. it was the most brilliant marketing campaign oh, ever, though. Oh, God, it's still it. It still and, is. Oh, you know, they're looking at this stuff 30 years ago going, look, you know, it, it tastes like crap. Nobody likes it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and we, you know, yeah, we've already pretty well roped in the livestock industry. We're feeding this stuff to cattle now. And now, yeah, you know, yeah. we're, we're, soy oil is, is the most, actually, it's the, the number one oil consumed. Wow. Uh, number one source of fat in the American diet is soybean oil, which all the, by the way, is all of it is partially hydrogenated. So you know, in other words, all of it contains trans fat as part of its what's called a deodorization process. Right. Well, so, we, yeah. um, so, and they're looking for a way, an angle to make more money, and they thought, hey, last, you know, what do you say we create a few, you know, fund a few well-placed so-called studies and start marketing this stuff, you know, to yuppies as health food. Right, and that's where it started. Yeah, and it's I can genius. Imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I bought, I bit that one a while back, but never really liked it, so it didn't stick with me, you know. But yeah. I want to scoot into something. Another question that came up for me, and we, you know, of course, what you're talking about and promoting is uh, uh, protein, animal protein, and right. you know, small amounts, but also being very careful to get good quality animal protein, right. which is uh, grass-fed rather than grain-fed, uh, you know, pasture-grazed uh, uh, animals and whatnot, you know, organic as well. Yep. Um, now, I'm going to say, you know, in my own experience, and I know other people too have had this uh, experience being in and out of the, uh, whether it be traditional Western medicine doctor or naturopath or even some nutritionist. Uh, I've been told for so long, get the cow out of the kitchen, um, <laughs> you know, do not eat meat, that it causes uh, inflammation and, yeah. you know, any joint pain you may have. Um, I mean, I've just been beaten over the head with don't eat meat. So, right. you know, and I keep saying, but that's what I like, you know. Well, and you got to uh, ask question, you know, where, you know, you always have to follow the money when it comes to these, um, these, these major proclamations. Yeah. Because, so, again, we've been eating meat for nearly all of, of our, our existence. In fact, literally for all of our human evolution. Right. Um, I mean, for 2.6 million years worth of it anyway. And we're all creatures of the Ice Age. And when you consider that for all but 5 or 10% of the last 500,000 years, we've been mostly in Ice Age, um, you know, that where there's permafrost, that leaves limited options. Right. So uh, humans have actually subsisted, of, uh, you know, in, in fairly significant degrees throughout our, our evolutionary history on a diet containing... Uh, you know, significant quantities of meat and fat. 
This has always been there, and um, we're very, very well designed to handle it. Where meat becomes problematic is, you know, the health of the meat that you're eating is directly, you know, proportional to the health of the animal that that meat came from. Right. When you have the meat of an animal that was raised in extremely crowded conditions, shoved full of hormones, antibiotics, you know, all sorts of unnatural chemicals, and, you know, fed cement dust, believe it or not, that was considered a safe additive for cattle feed. Hmm. It certainly makes them worth more at slaughter. Um, makes the, the muscle weigh more so they yeah. have to get more per pound. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know, um, but that just sounds... You know, and gum wrappers and all these kinds of things, uh, too, that they've... Yeah, feed them your garbage, with. yeah. Exactly. They'll eat it, and it's cheap, and there you go. Right. And mm. then you have an animal sitting out there uh, in, in a feedlot in crowded conditions producing massive stress hormones, and we get to eat those, too. Right. Uh, and, you know, and then they're fed a food that's completely unnatural to them. Grains are no more natural to cattle than they are to us. Um, right. Uh, and they, grains are basically used to fatten them up. So we can all take a hint from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the meat of an animal that has been feedlot fed and raised in that fashion is going to be, well, probably very high in a lot of you know toxic compounds from, from being raised in that regard. But in addition, it's going to have a very, very different kind of fatty acid profile than you might get from an animal that was raised out in fresh air and sunshine, consuming basically fresh green grass, a food that's entirely natural for cattle. Yeah. Uh, for their optimal health and uh, well treated, and it's a night and day difference. It looks the, it looks similar on a platter, but the difference in terms of its composition is night and day. You know, and, I don't even think it looks the same. Well, I mean, and and you're right, actually. Mm-hmm. I think if you really go a yeah, discerning really eye it. and you look at it, junk meat from the from a chain grocery store, yeah. and then you go and you look at the higher-end quality organic stores that sell, you know, organic grain or, or wild, whatever, roaming, whatever, free-range, you know, yeah. animals, the, it, the, it looks different. It, well, it tastes different. True. It looks I different. I think if, you're, if, you, if you do really look closely, you are going to see that it, that it mm-hmm. looks different, too. Mm-hmm. But on a microscopic level, holy moly, it's, right, it's right. totally different. So when you feed an animal grains, uh, at, and, and mind you, all cattle are grass-fed for some portion of their life. So if you go to a butcher and you say, well, can, is, is this cow grass-fed? Well, they can, you know, they can legally say yes and, and get away with that because all cattle are grass-fed to some degree. It's a question of how that animal was fed toward the end of its life. Was it fed in a feedlot at any point you know, toward the end of its life? Because that, in a feedlot, they're fed grains and corn and soy and you know, who knows what else to fatten them up quickly. And it Use completely changes the fatty acid profile of the meat. What right. you have is a disproportionately high level of omega-6 fatty acids, which are the ones that are geared toward, more so toward uh, inflammation, right. toward promoting inflammation in the body. And you may not have any omega-3s at all. Whereas if you have a cow that has been fed on nothing but, but fresh green grass its entire life, and it was allowed to consume grass right up until it went you know, to slaughter, that meat is going to have about as much omega-3 per gram as wild-caught salmon. Right. And wild game, too. We got most of our omega-3s from eating wild game. Huh. So so let me ask a question here, because, you know, we're talking about widespread, not just the cow, although I mentioned cow at the beginning here. What about, you know, uh, pork and as opposed to cow, as opposed to lamb, as opposed to chicken? I right. mean, let's, let's call them all meat, but would you say... Um, you know, I mean, do you have uh, advice or 
uh, understanding around, certainly of understanding, but which which of those is, are they all equal as far as you're concerned if you got them being raised in the same circumstances of freedom and, and best, uh, you know, dietary circumstances? Well, um, I tend to personally be lean towards selecting fattier cuts of meat. That's my preference in terms of taste and also the fattier the cut of meat, the larger the portion um, I feel like I can get away with because, of course, you know, part of what I talk about in my book is limiting the amount of protein that we consume. We want the protein to be complete, and we want it to be extremely high-quality and nutrient-dense. Right. But we also don't want to over-consume that. And so, We're talking about a total, uh, a total intake, daily intake of about five or six ounces. Yeah, that's uh-huh. all anybody has to have. Mm-hmm. And when we exceed that, protein in excess of what we absolutely need for our maintenance and repair um, and, our, and our daily bodily processes, tends to get converted to sugar and stored the same way. And also it, it will upregulate certain metabolic pathways that we now know can lead to premature aging and, the, and degenerative disease. And so, um, so it makes sense when you, when you downregulate that particular metabolic pathway. That pathway is called mTOR, by the way, which stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. Right. Uh, and I talk about that in my book, and it's, yeah. it's a technical thing, but... But if we can keep that pathway down regulated by just eating enough protein to meet that, those daily needs, that five, six ounces a day, um, what gets upregulated instead of cellular proliferation um, and a lot of energy being put toward trying to make new things in your body, instead what happens is your body focuses on, on repairing and regenerating you. So it's literally, it literally has an anti-aging effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why these uh, ex- experiments in the early 1900s that found that caloric restriction seems to have this effect on extending normal healthy lifespan. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, uh, why that was true. The, but, the, you know, the main reason, because mTOR is, is very closely related and it's also mitigated by insulin. Right. If there is one marker for longevity, um, that is more true than any other, it is low insulin levels. The less insulin we produce over the course of our lives, the longer we will live and the healthier we will be by far. And yeah. so maintaining insulin at the lowest uh, possible level um, is, is key, actually, to longevity and, and, and freedom uh, from disease. Right. Interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we have about ten minutes left, and there's sure. one one thing I want to go cover a little bit because, again, I think this is a really common misunderstanding of most people I know, and I have to tell you, uh, most adults, and it's not even just adults. You just see kids walking around that are younger that have the same problem, uh, walk around with uh, tums or antacids in their pocket, and oh. that's such a bad <laughs> a bad misconception about this whole thing about stomach acid and uh, you know yep. needing to. So let's talk. Uh, uh, let's break the myth there a little bit around um, the uh, the whole idea of oh, us over, well, yeah. overproducing uh, acid in our stomach. And it, it's a huge, huge problem. Yes. In, the, in the vast majority of cases, when you have somebody who who has reflux or whatever, their problem is not too much acid. It's not enough, and right. that sounds paradoxical. No, no, yeah. But it's such a critical thing to understand that you know uh, that. Their stomach has to maintain, uh, maintains, a, our stomach is an acid organ. It's designed to be at an extremely, extremely acid pH, nearly 
all the time. And so, you know, usually, you know, if there's no food in your stomach, maybe the pH will be around 3. When there's food in our, when there's protein in particular in our stomach, our body, there are hormones called gastrin that stimulate the parietal cells to produce hydrochloric acid. And the pH necessary for the, for the proper breakdown of protein and also the assimilation of minerals, by the way, is about, about 1.8, which is extremely acid. Right. It burn holes through just about anything. Right. But our stomach loves that. It is bathed in acid. It is an acid organ. Right. It's meant for that. Right. But what if, for instance, you're the pH in your stomach when you're trying to digest that piece of meat to 4 instead of 1.8? Um, that's still pretty acid, but it's not acid enough. So, you know, here you eat this meal with, like, potatoes and steak and you got, you know, you washed it down with a Coca-Cola or a glass of wine and then you had that dessert and, you know, you take a blender and you throw all that stuff into that blender and spit in it, stir it up a little bit and let it sit out at 98.6 degrees, you know, for an hour or two and you see what comes out of it. You know, it's going to start to ferment if it's not breaking down properly. And so then you you get this gas, you start, you get a little belchy and the there's a, there's a valve at the bottom of your stomach called the pyloric valve, and it's what decides what gets through into your small intestine and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it's paying attention to what that pH is because it's, it's, it, it, when the pH is proper, that signals the pyloric valve to open up and to let the contents through. It, under, it knows that things were digested properly. And if, and if things aren't, you know, if the pH isn't right, it's going to lock up and say, no, we don't want this crap getting through. And so then it kind of ferments and roils. And it's got to go somewhere so it backs up. Next thing you know, you've got this stuff backing up into your esophagus, which, by the way, is not at all designed to handle acid. It doesn't have any uh, safeguards against acidity. And a pH of 4 is still extremely acid, and it's going to burn. Right. So more cases than not of, you know, what people are thinking of as hyperacidity, and there are exceptions to this, but far more the exception than the rule, are the the problem is not enough acid and not too much. And so what happens when you take a Tums? Well, you're you taking... You worsen, yeah. Throwing. Yeah, you're, you're neutralizing the acid even more. Right. And uh, for people who are on medications designed to neutralize acid long-term, which even the PDRs say that people aren't supposed to be on them more than two weeks at a time, and I know people who've been on them for years, um, you've taken a bad situation and made it much worse mm-hmm. by lowering your body's ability to be able to, you know, digest well. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who's on Prilosec or on Tums right now needs to immediately stop that and, and whatever, because your body is, is, is adapted to that, and, and it's a careful process of um, you have to make sure that there isn't inflammation there and all these other sorts of things before you start trying to add hydrochloric acid back in. But, um, but there are ways of restoring healthy hydrochloric acid production, and more often than not, that is kind of what it is you need to be considering um, under those circumstances. Rather, and, rather than look to, uh, you know, uh, taking a medication or some sort of a, right. a, a solution through a pill of some sort, it seems to me the most logical first step would be to understand what you're eating and how it either contributes or detracts from creating that acid balance in the stomach. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are doctors that will tell you, not, not to badmouth doctors, but right. I, I have a client who, whose doctor told him that he didn't need hydrochloric acid. Wow, well, that's... I mean, you know, yeah, and I'm 
sitting there shaking my head going, oh, my God, you're kidding. Uh I mean, we have to have it to digest protein, and we have to have it to digest and absorb minerals. Minerals need to be ionized, and about 11 different minerals need to be ionized in the gut in order to be properly absorbed. Another one, Nora, that I've heard so much about is this this idea of food combining, where they say, please don't ingest any animal protein Uh with a simple carbohydrate, because the two don't mix together. It's it's complex carbohydrates and and, uh, animal protein. You know, I would say if you are optimally healthy, that might be a bit of a myth. Okay. But for somebody whose digestion is compromised, and quite frankly, there are more people wandering around with, with compromised digestion than not. I would say if you have, you know, you know, if, you know, if you feel like your digestion is, is, is compromised somehow, you know, you're not digesting well, then I would say it's probably a really good idea to, you know, limit your protein intake to just, a, you know, a couple, three ounces per meal, chew it extremely well. And, and first and foremost, understand that digestion is a parasympathetic process. In other words, your nervous system needs to be in a calm, relaxed state in order for digestion to occur. If you're stressed or anxious or watching, God forbid, the evening news <laughs> um, or, or, or anything else that stresses you out, arguing with your kids or whatever, or you're on the go, you're racing off to an appointment and you're just trying to grab some food on the go, mm-hmm. you're in a fight-or-flight state your digestive processes don't function in a fight-or-flight state. Mm-hmm. So when you're stressed, that, that's the number one thing to consider mm-hmm. is when you're going to sit down to eat, you need to relax and focus on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Don't overeat. Don't overburden your body's capacity to produce hydrochloric acid. Don't ask it to try to digest an 8-ounce steak in one sitting. Mm-hmm. You know, just a few ounces and chew them really well. And don't overcook the meat because overcooking the meat makes it harder to digest. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't combine it with starches and sugars mm-hmm. because those tend to require a more alkaline environment. It's true, and they're more likely to kind of neutralize that hydrochloric acid and, and challenge it. Mm-hmm. So, and don't drink too much fluid with the meal. Right. You know, if you need to sip a little water, that's fine, but don't be gulping down and, and having a soda with dinner or, or even drinking too much wine. With iced, even. You or, know, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, which is even worse. It constricts all the... Right. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, and I think you'd be surprised at what you can accomplish on your own. Yeah. Oh no, I think yeah, yeah. Just you know, Doctor Jonathan Wright really has has written a wonderful book about you know why stomach acid is good for you. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's uh, that book is a great reference for people who really want to understand. I think what's going on with their with their stomach acid. Um, and uh, there are other great books, too. And yeah. That one just sort of popped into my head because I know he, he's up there Yeah, that way. Uh, with our last five minutes, let's briefly talk about uh, juicing because I think that's another big uh, social yeah. uh, thing that people do and, you know, the big juicers and the juice industry, so smoothies and all that. Talk a little bit about what the, the pitfalls are of juicing besides what's really obvious. But Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the problem, of course, with juicing is I mean, consider just from a logical standpoint, would our ancestors ever have, you know, taken and, you know, squeezed, squeezed every, you know, every, you know, the, the liquid out of whatever was growing on the trees um, uh, and thrown away the rest and, and just drunk that? It's, it was not something that um, our ancestors would have done much of. They, they did do some you know, fermentation of, of fruits and vegetables and things like that for, 
maybe purposes of enhancing digestion or healthy, back, you know, internal bacteria and stuff. Um, but juice is something that's kind of an unnatural thing. Our ancestors, by and large, would have consumed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And what you have when you remove the fiber and most of the phytonutrients from it is you basically have sugar water. Uh, and it's not really that much better for you than any other, um, you know, carbonated beverage or anything else out there. People think of, well, you know, no, I don't ever let my kids uh, drink pop. I just, they just drink juice. Well, <laughs> same thing. you know, you might as well hook up, you know, an IV to, you know, uh, to sugar water because that's kind of what you're getting. You're getting something that is not, that's entering the bloodstream very, very rapidly. And, of course, fructose is, 20 to 30 times more glycating than glucose. And so it's something that can actually do a lot more damage if you're, if you're overdoing it. Right. Uh, so, you know, and in many respects, too, many of the most beneficial properties of fruits and vegetables actually exist in the more solid portions of those, of those plants. When you consider that, um, that the, the, the skin of, a, of an apple or a, or a plum or, or a blueberry is basically the, that the best uh, the seeds the seeds protection against oxidative processes and pollutants and all kinds of things and so most of the antioxidants are actually in the pigment of the you know of, of the skin of a lot of these things right okay. and uh, there are some wonderful phytonutrients and, and bioflavonoids and things in the pulp yeah and what gets left behind yeah, when you yeah. juice yeah 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 so. Well, here we are at the end. I can't believe it. You know, time flies when I'm with Gosh, Nora. Darn with, it. Yeah, when I'm yeah. with you. So yeah. um, I want right to drive people. Yeah, I want to drive people to the website. It's incredible. There's a lot There's a lot on the website that I love. There's uh, primal recipes uh, for you if you're wondering, scratching your head about just what you can eat. Uh, there's a wonderful article in here, Top 10 Nutritional Mistakes. Please go check that out. That's really important. Uh, again, the book uh, covered nicely on the on the website, but I recommend highly that you get this book. It just may save your life. Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Total Health the Way Evolution Intended and Didn't. Anyway, Nora Gidgaudis and uh, your uh, radio show is also on the website, Voice America. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me again, and uh, I know we'll be in touch in the future because uh, oh, yeah, it's a it's a great uh, a great connection, and I love uh, all that you're you're bringing us in the way of knowledge and wisdom. Oh, so thank, thank you, you Nora. so much. It's been such a pleasure being here. You're wonderful. Thank you so much, Nora. Bye bye for you. now. Bye bye. Okay, listeners, that was a lot to digest. I'm going to go home and listen to that again. So anyway, a wonderful uh, information. This is Catherine Bradford saying thank you so much for joining me today. I'll look forward to joining you again on Friday at 2 o'clock for Our View. Bye-bye for now.